0: Uh, How was Thanksgiving for everyone? I hope it was good, uh, meeting some family. Uh, I hope you didn't have any trouble getting into your pants uh, this morning. But uh, for us, uh, you know, we don't really have family here. And my parents, uh, who are now uh, in Vancouver, decided to go to Korea because it's our first year memorial service for my grandmother who passed away right around this time. And so uh, we just spent time alone with family. And it was nice that I didn't have anything to do the next day. Uh, But I still came to church on Friday. I don't know why. Uh, And so it was just a force of habit. I hope uh, Thanksgiving was really great. And as we enter into a season of Advent, expecting with hope of Christ's uh, birth, um, there's a lot of wonderful things that we are not only thankful for, but we will celebrate. So it's great to see all of you. And we are now back in our Genesis series once again. I do promise we will finish it sometime. Uh, but we will uh, take some time in doing that. And Genesis 27 is where we are uh, today. Genesis 27, verses 18 to 29. Uh, if you are physically able, uh, you will, uh, could you stand with us? If not, please read with us uh, while sitting. So he went into his father and said, "'My father,' and he said, "'Here I am. Who are you, my son?' And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn, I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord, your God, granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like brother Esau's hand. So he blessed him and he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garment and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's son bow down to you. Curse be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. I don't know if you've been kind of uh, remembering the story of Jacob and Esau, but uh, the drama and the suspense is one of the most gripping in the book of Genesis. Now, these questions have to be asked Will Isaac find out the disguise of Jacob? And will Isaac find out when he touches the goatskin draped around Jacob's neck? Will Esau arrive back from the hunt before Isaac has eaten the special stew and blessed Jacob? we wait to see if jacob and his mother rebecca gets away with this daring daring deceit will they get caught now as the story unfolds one has to wonder it has to bring some form of outrage as we see the story unfold for the sheer issue of moral and theological integrity How can God allow this blessing to take place even in the midst of such underhanded tactic of deceit? Now, maybe the the situation for us as we see it is not as crystal clear as we think. I think we just like to pin it onto Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, and most of us feel comfortable in doing so. But this episode begins by a remark of Esau marrying two Hittite wives who made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. I read to you from Genesis 26, 34 to 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basmeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, how bad was it that they made the parents' life a bitter life, right? As it pertains to Genesis, bigamy in itself is a questionable thing because God only created one wife for Adam. Now, even if bigamy was doubtful marrying Hittites, Canaanites should certainly have been avoided. So back in those days, intermarriage with Canaanites was quite out of the question. For Isaac, his father Abram had sent a servant all the way to Haran to find a suitable wife for his son, Isaac. Loyalty to family tradition should have dictated Esau do the same, being the firstborn of the family. Is it a case of Esau, or does it reflect on something else? After all, Isaac was 40, as it says in chapter 25, verse 20, when Abram arranged his marriage to Rebekah. But why had not Isaac done the same for his two sons, Esau and also Jacob? You see, Isaac is most assuredly always portrayed as a very passive, as a very peaceful, as a very caring, quiet personality. And he is rewarded by a reaffirmation of promise and great prosperity. However, here if you see his virtues and his personality, it becomes kind of sluggish. Why? Because he has failed to find a suitable wife for his sons in that culture his life had made Because of his sluggishness, a very unsuitable sense of daughters-in-law coming, and it was quite miserable for him. Now, on his deathbed, he even forgoes convention and summons and tradition, because he only brings Esau to receive his last blessing, whereas it was very customary for a dying man in that day and age to call all of his sons, I'm sorry, daughters, that's the culture that they were living in. But at those days, all the sons would have been summoned, and he would have prayed for them. He would have given them the last words, and he would have said, I need you to live by this covenant. But deliberately, Isaac only calls Esau to receive his blessing, and he leaves out Jacob. You see where I'm getting at? It's not just. Jacob and Rebekah, there's other people involved that brought this situation to the forefront. Now, the reason why he calls Esau is what? Hey, make me the tasty stew that I love. Make me the tasty stew that I love. What is food that all you're thinking about in that moment of very importance, that's all you're thinking about? You have to think about this. Am I forgoing all tradition and all the rituals of my tradition and heritage? Should I not have invited both Jacob and Esau? But now I know Jacob is not as good cook as Esau. He doesn't know how to hunt. So he's saying, Esau, bring to me the tasty stew that I love so much and then I will bless you. Church, I'm not saying seeking tasty things are wrong. But in perhaps, if this is your motivation, it's wrong in this instance. There is an implication that Isaac and Esau are both alike in putting appetite before principle. Self-indulgence before justice. And immediate satisfaction before long-term spiritual values. Now there's something to be said. No matter what pleasure lies before us, we cannot take shortcuts in life. We must always follow principle. If we will not follow principle, we will never be blessed. We will never be happy and satisfied with the results that we receive and getting the results from shortcuts. Because you know you didn't do it the proper way. When justice calls, it must never be abandoned for what we desire. For Christians, not only are we the people who seek justice, but we must be champions of it. If not, who will stand for the powerless, the voiceless, and those forgotten in society? Now, I came across a video that I saw recently of a show of a late night talk show host. And the person that came up was the founder of Tom's. You guys know about this? We think it's a fashionable statement to wear Tom's, and I think it it, it is, because I actually bought one. But if you understand the shoe company, it was buy a shoe today, and we will give a shoe tomorrow. The reason why they say Tom's is not because the founder is Tom. It's because he couldn't fit tomorrow in in the the shoe, so he just said Tom's. Do you guys know that? Okay, I didn't know that either. I thought his actual name was Tom's. But, but because he said, you buy a shoe today, and we'll give it to someone tomorrow, free. It's one for one. You buy one, we give somebody else. But this is something that I saw. And, and, and please understand, you know, like, uh, all of us are politically divided here. I understand, and that's free for us to think so. But here, I want to take a little stab at this. There is something to be said in our country with gun violence. And the founder of Tom's company, his name is Blake, and he was crying because he said, I have a vision for the future. He said, I've recently made a $5 million donation to fight against gun violence through assistance with mental health, research, policy, and suicide prevention. If you go on the website, he is asking lawmakers to pass universal background checks for people who are going to purchase guns in our country. And if you do so, he says that he will send postcards to your representative via his website. You should do that. I think that's okay. I think so, some of us get so Republican and Democrat, and we're like, well, we, we have to stand for the freedom to carry firearms. And, and no, we shouldn't. There should be a little bit more. But I want to say this. We cannot allow our society to see people die because of reckless violence. And if we could do anything about that, it should be us as Christians. I don't know if this guy's a Christian, but it should have been one of us to say, we're going to make a huge donation to help with research, with prevention, with policies, because enough is enough. Church, when justice is called upon, we can't just choose what we desire. We have to choose to be the voice for the powerless, to people who don't have a voice, to people who are forgotten in society. This is why we do what we do. Not just for the sake of sounding politically correct, but because of the gospel has done such a great work in our life that we want to provide the very same thing for the people who don't know Jesus Christ. Now let's go to Uh, Rebecca here. Rebecca is the wife of uh, Isaac. And when we first meet her in chapter 24, she appears to be the perfect wife for Isaac. Beautiful. Okay, I say beautiful. Energetic. She was willing to leave home and family for the land of promise. Her energy complemented Isaac's kind of laid-back, retiring nature. But his life of the quiet life, led him to neglect his fatherly duties. He was indifferent to ancient politeness and rule, so her dominating nature led her to overstep the bounds of moral behavior. Faced with her favorite son not being blessed at all by his father before his death, she comes up with a deception and a daring scheme with Jacob so that he could receive the blessing instead of Esau. And it works awesome. It's brilliant. But how many times does she make Jacob, her son, lie before his very own father? Is this really you, Esau? Yes. How did you find the game so quickly? He uses God's name in vain because the Lord provided. Is this really you? I want to, your voice sounds like Jacob, but There's something weird about you. Your hand is still hairy. And I'm thinking, how hairy is this guy that you got to get an animal skin on it to, to say that? Wow. But just imagine what this mother is doing to his child, to her child. She's basically saying, it's okay if you just get the blessing. And it's okay to lie to your parents in the midst of it. So as long as the results are okay. Church, that's not right. We all live by not just the moral code, because all people in some way, if you are a normal thinking human being, you know between right and wrong. But for us as Christians, it's light and darkness. We should know. But if we are asked to lie for the results of something good to come, then we should say no, because that's not what we're after. How many times does Rebecca put her son in a place where he has to lie before his very own father? Listen, on his deathbed. That's the very last thing that you do before your father, whether you like him or not. I'm just saying, before he breathes his last, you're going to lie to him multiple times just so that you can get this blessing. This is unacceptable behavior. Not only that, this family... It's pretty messed up, if you think about it. The brothers don't like each other. Mom and dad have their favorites, you know. I like him because he can cook. I like him because he stays at home and talks with me all the time. I mean, come on, it's got to be something more than that. This family is totally messed up. Now, Jacob objects, doesn't he? He says, but, but won't he find out? Won't he find out? Like, dude, where is your moral code? You should have just said, no. Mom, I can't. I know I want that blessing too, and I'm, I'm conniving in my own way, but I just can't do that. Not before my dad, who's about to die. There's no way that I can lie to him. But did he object, slightly, softly object because of his moral integrity, or did he object because he was fearful of being caught? It wasn't the fear It was the fear that really, really pushed him to say, well, mom, should I really be doing this? But if you think about it, they suffered for their actions. Jacob had to flee from home to escape his brother's wrath. Rebecca hopes that he will be away only a a few days or a few weeks. But it lasts 20 years and she never sees her favorite son ever again. Jacob the deceiver is for his part cruelly deceived by his own father-in-law Laban who makes him marry the unlovely Leah as well as the beautiful Rachel and Jacob never accepted Leah or her sons and the bitter tension between them makes his life miserable for the rest of his life. Church, I don't know about you but one husband and one wife is enough. Think about having two the extra amount of burden and pressure, right? I don't know how that works, but he paid ultimately for his deception. Like his mother, Rebecca, he would spend most of his latter years mourning the loss of his favorite son. Thus, it's apparent that the silence of this moral fiber gone wrong, that the narrator is actually talking about this way, that they all paid dearly. So we're not just outraged that Isaac and Rebecca was at fault. I just think everyone was messed up. If you really think about it, Rebecca was messed up. Isaac did not do his fatherly duties. Jacob, the deceiver, the liar, the conniving one who sold lentil soup just to get the birthright. Esau, he didn't care about anything, and now he wants it once he's already given up everything. So now this is a family in great distress. But if you think about all these characters, they're all in some way messed up. So what does that mean for us? Despite it all, the prophecy is fulfilled. Doesn't that really mess you up? That they will be a great nation, from Genesis 12, when, when God promises Abraham, but I'm thinking, God, wait a minute, like, why are you using these people? Use some good ones that are really good in their moral uprightness, the ones that have a good family, the ones that really, really should be placed on a, a social standard and a status. Why are you using these people who are so self-righteous, self- indulgent about what they want. Ultimately, it's about them, never about you. But still, your prophecy of what you had promised is fulfilled. Why do you do that? You know, so assured that Isaac's prayer for Jacob, he says this, uh, one who will live as a wandering, nomadic existence away from settled agriculture existence while the other enjoys the fruit of the earth. Isaac confirms that Esau, the older, will serve the younger. The prophecy finds fulfillment in the history, if you know a little bit about Israel and Edom, and the lines of God's chosen ones now will pass through Jacob instead of Esau. Now, by setting this prophecy to be fulfilled, and we move it forward in terms of salvation in the midst of such uncertainty, Principled behavior by every member of this family, each self centered, seeking his own interests. The narrator, the writer of this book, is pointing out the fallibility of God's chosen and the sinfulness of God's chosen, whose virtues turn to vices, but letting the readers know by reasserting that it is fulfilled because of the grace of God. It's in his mercy that the ultimate ground of salvation is played through, even though we are messy, messed up people. Church, if you think about that, he uses these four characters to bring about the great salvation redemptive plan. And I'm thinking, wow, that should give us a little bit of, okay, he sees us, and he's also going to use me and you. As I kind of take a little bit of an evaluation of where I am in life, I have to say, I never attended an Ivy League school. I've been to an Ivy League school. I drank from their water fountain, but that's all I did. My dad always said, if you go to a good school, just drink their water. Something might happen to you. (laughs) I haven't founded anything. I didn't start a company. I didn't innovate. I'm not a visionary of anything. I don't sit on boards. I'm not a PhD. I haven't received any kind of honorary doctorate. Who would honor me? I'm nobody. I'm not even the most influential on any top 100 list. Nobody knows who I am. There are more famous Paul Kims than I like to admit. I'm not a rising star in any area of life. I haven't written a book, nor was my publication ever endorsed by anyone. I don't have any letters after my name. I don't speak in front of arena-filled people wanting to die to hear what I say. I don't even charge a crazy amount per hour just so that I can coach them and mentor them. I'll do it for free. I'm not a keynote speaker of anything. I have no buildings, no streets after my name. Have you seen any streets named Paul Kim? No, no, but it's okay. It's really okay. Why? Because if you hear this story, God will use someone like me and you to bring about salvation to the people who don't really deserve it. Why? Because God, God is so utterly non, unimpressed by my resume. God laughs at my attempt to, to sound good or be worthy. Our accomplishment is not the reason why I exist. All the things that I've done, all the greatness that I think I can achieve, God is unimpressed by all of that. He doesn't care how many Facebook friends I have. He doesn't care how many tweets I've tweeted that are memorable. He doesn't care any of that. If you really look at scripture, he doesn't always choose the brightest and the best. He uses the foolish. If you look at King Solomon, wasn't he one of the most wisest people on earth? He was wise, he was wealthy, he was powerful, he was famous. He was probably good looking and muscular and all the things that I'm not. He was a brilliant poet, a songwriter. He was a genius when it came to biology. He just knew how to garden, but his garden was so big and amazing that he would wreck all of your gardens put together. Right? He was Da Vinci and Bach and all these people put together into one body. But... It says in Scripture, Solomon turned away from God. Now having all the wisdom in the world doesn't guarantee anything. Now wisdom is good, we should ask for it, but don't get me wrong. If we lack wisdom, we ask for God for it, but wisdom alone is insufficient. It doesn't matter if you have theological degrees, it doesn't matter if you have... Six beautiful kids, they are all gone to Ivy League schools and they're medical doctors and whatever other things that we only hope for. And, And it doesn't matter how many nonprofit organizations you started. It doesn't matter how much you've fed the poor and how many things that you have done to end sexual trafficking. God is unimpressed. Am I getting my point across here? Yeah. Being a creative, innovator, highly effective leader don't mean nothing to God. It doesn't matter. God yawns at all of that. If I say, God, I have leadership abilities, God says, oh, oh, that's so boring. You might be like a productivity guru, but God's like, so? See, it doesn't make us anything more in the eyes of God. See, we need to remember that God uses the foolish. God picks the, the, the least Reputable sometimes, the least recognizable, the scrawniest person. God chooses the, the lowliest people. God uses the overwhelmed and shovelled. God uses people that we have never imagined so. God can even use an autistic man to give the most profound articulation of our faith. Consider your calling, brothers, that many of you who are wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human Human being might boast in the presence of God. If your resume is sparse like mine, it's okay. If your intellect is feeble like mine, it's okay. If your skills are unimpressive and you are unimpressed with yourself, that's still okay because God can still use even you. That's good. Thank you, God, that God can use someone like me. Because God... Uses those who humble themselves before the cross, boasting only in him and his strength, his wisdom, his righteousness, and his accomplishments. I once went to a passion conference, and, and one of my um, pastors that I looked up to, he doesn't know me, but I know him. I read one of his books, the only book that I ever read. You know, he's, his, his love is very crazy. So you know who, who I'm talking about, Francis Chan. And, and so he, he was speaking, he said, you know, I'm pastoring a mega church. And it's not like he was bragging about it. It is. It's just, it's fact. He's pastoring a mega church, and when we were going into seminary, that was what we thought we were all going to be. I don't know where it came from, but all of us said, "If you go to seminary and you come out and you write a book and you give some kind of an innovative new perspective on the things that everyone else has done the same, just change it up a little bit, give some words a change a little bit, and you'll become a mega church pastor." We actually believe this. That's what we thought we were going to be. We 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 didn't really feel like we we're called to the the rural areas or the poor areas, to the inner cities, but we thought God was calling us to be the next great thing. So I sat there, one of the passion conferences, and he said, boy, would I love to be part of a church where it had nothing to do with me. If the church grows, great, so be it, but not on the account of me. And this is where I felt he went even a little bit one step further. He said, man, sometimes I wish... Because I know that if I were to start a church next week, people will gather by the hundreds and thousands just to hear me. But I don't want to be part of a church like that anymore. I want to be so part of a church where the Holy Spirit is so involved in every aspect of my life and church. That they come because they want to encounter the living God and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe that's why he left to make a church. I mean, if you think about it, why would you leave a megachurch? It's got the most cushioned job, right? Pastor Eric, if you remember, uh, three weeks ago, he said he only receives a, a, like a salary of 36000 or something. Well, he makes more than that. Okay, let's be honest. He's written books, and, and he, every circuit that he goes to, he gets paid handsomely. But even that, he says, but, but God, I want to be part of something where I know it has nothing to do with me. Church, when we see the story of Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Rebekah, what God is telling us is God is prepared to use you. Even though you are unimpressed with yourself, even though you look at your resume and you're like, man, this cannot be. Why would God ever use someone like me? If I'm a great example of someone that God has used for a little bit of the expansion and the movement of the Holy Spirit and the expansion of the kingdom of God, I think God can use you has nothing to do with degrees. It has nothing to do with your eloquent speech. It has nothing to do, because if you see all of Scripture, God uses the lowly to bring about the goodness and the greatness of his kingdom. God uses pathetic people for his glorious purposes to show his superior power. So we don't have to lament at our insufficiency. We don't have to begrudge my weakness. We rejoice that Christ is all sufficient and always dependable. So we have to embrace what? Our weakness. So that the power of Christ may dwell and rest upon you to reveal God's surpassing greatness. Greatness. Be encouraged, people. God intends to use you in a multifaceted way. Even though you are weak, that you are obscure, he will use it for the glory of his name. It's okay to be a nobody. Because you serve a mighty God. I was thinking, like, what, what then would I want to do? If I, if I were to live this life for the next 40 years, right, and that would be like in my earlier parts of eighty. What would I be so satisfied if I were to just do this well? I have to go back to my calling. God has called each and every one of you. If God gave me an opportunity just before the audience of 5, 1, 10, 20, it doesn't matter, but as long as I have years and I can train people and teach them that this is the gospel, this is who Jesus is, if I just had that, that would be fulfilling for me. I don't think in my wildest dreams that I would have been where I am now. I always envisioned that I would do something that was catered to the calling of Jesus Christ that God called me to, but this is not what I imagined. There's nothing bad. I love what I do, but I'm thinking, if I just did this, I would be so satisfied. I remember as I was... a. Uh, resigning from my first church that I ever served. I still remember her name. Her name was April. And from the very first Sunday, I just thought she did not like me. But you know my personality, I don't really care. You know, I was like, well, I have you and 60 other kids, so as long as the 59 like me, I think that's a good percentage. And she just had this frown on her face. Her arms crossed every time I spoke, and, and, then, and I just felt like she was just like literally giving me like a, a, like a score. I could tell, like if I was somewhat decent that day, her frown wouldn't be as frowny. But there were days where I was like, wow, even I thought that was pretty bad and her frown was like really bad. And so I announced to the church after serving faithfully that I was going to be called to another church and I was going to do children's ministry. Can you imagine me doing children's ministry? I actually was pretty effective. I, I loved doing children's ministry. I brought like props. I used video games. I was pretty good, I thought. And then, um, and, and, and as I was kind of, you know, like blessing them and hugging them all one by one. And, and then April came to me, and this is what April said. Pastor Paul, I'm going to miss you and all your sermons that you gave to me. Are you sure you're talking about me? Because you look upset the whole time I was here, girl. So No, I, re- I remember every one of your sermons. And she named one of the sermons that she was so touched by. She said, that really gave me a turning point in my relationship with God. A church that I was serving in Atlanta, there was a great revival that happened. I don't know why it happened, but it must have been the Holy Spirit. When I uh, announced uh, that I would be um, moving to a different ministry, um, uh, he was a kid that came from a broken family. But he would faithfully come every single Sunday. And, and, and I tried to connect with him, but I just, I just couldn't. But as I, I finished... He said, um, Pastor Paul, I have something to say. There's one sermon that you gave. You probably don't remember it, but it was one word that you said that just totally changed my outlook on who Jesus is. Now I'm thinking, what was that one word, dude? What was it? He said it was faith, but the way that you said it, I could sense that you also were fighting for faith, that if someone like him also struggles to walk with Jesus Christ, I have a little bit of a hope that's why I follow Jesus now. And I was like, man, that's crazy. It almost made me cry. And you know I don't cry. But I'm thinking like this. God, how could you use someone like me for the gospel story and the salvation story? Church, we think that if we go out into society, that what would they listen to? How would they even say yes to what I'm saying? I'm a nobody. I haven't written any books. I haven't done any kind of guru activities. Who? Who would listen to me? But I bet you they would if we just take that bold risk and to say, I want to say yes to whatever calling that you have called me to. If we open ourselves out of our comfortability and walk into the zones of the unknown, God will use. Because if God has promised, his promise will be fulfilled no matter what is going on. God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ. It wasn't based out of condition. It was based out of His love for us. And I love that. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. For me, I always get caught up in for God so loved the world. Thank you, God, that you don't love me because of the things that I've accomplished. Thank you, God, even... Despite my failures, you still choose to love me. Thank you in the midst of all that I am worthy enough in your eyes for the saving project of your amazing kingdom. Church, I want you to close your eyes with me at this time and let's pray. God, um, as we hear this story, we have to find us in this story. And God is proclaiming to our hearts right now. I have not ever sought your accolades, your accomplishments, your innovation, your creativity, your power, your titles, your health, your strength, your power. I've always sought that as you embrace your weakness, that I would be strong. And that God is speaking into our hearts right now saying, I'm going to use you. And some of us have graciously, in our own way, thinking that was humility, saying, God, no, not me. There's far better people to be used. But I'm saying this, God... Is going to use you. And you won't believe as to how great of lengths that he will go to use people like us. So I wonder if we can avail our hearts before him and say, God, I'm not impressed with myself. But as I embrace my weakness, may you use someone like me so that you will receive the glory unto your name. Let's pray for that. Gracious God, how incapable we are sometimes, how broken and messy we are sometimes, but still you use us as we hear in the story of Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Rebekah. Lord, there are things that we learn that even despite all the messiness of all this, that when you prophesy and you promise, you always desire to fulfill. Thank you, O Lord, that as we see ourselves in this story, that we sometimes have gone after our pleasure and our appetites instead of principle. We've often turned our backs against justice because it sounded too discomforting to us. We've often gone after the temporary things instead of long endurance in the same direction, obeying in the mighty God. In whatever situation we are in, in whatever life we are in, whatever area that you have called us to, I pray, O Lord God, that you would use every single person here for the greatness of your name. The lives will be turned. Lives will be transformed people will come to faith. Or there will be one person that will get to know Jesus in and through our life. That you would use where we work, where we are, where we live, in our connections and our relationships to do a mighty work of your kingdom. Father, I pray that just as you have gathered us here this day, that Lord, you would send us to do your great work of salvation. Thank you that you use someone like me. Oh, gracious God, we are uh, so thankful that in this story that we read today, we still see the powerful, overarching promise that God laid onto Abram's heart. That He said, You will be a great nation, and all those will be blessed because of you. And as that promise, goes through different generations and flows down to the generations that we saw this morning in Jacob and Esau. Father, your promise is for sure that what you promise is good and it will be fulfilled. And I pray for anyone who's holding on to a very promise that they believe they've received from God. I pray that there would be a yes in your eyes. Despite our fallenness, despite our sinfulness, despite the messiness of our life, you are using us fulfill a mighty plan that you have for this world in our area in our family in our community make it so that there be a powerful movement of your kingdom here where we live whether that is in bothell whether that is in issaquah whether that is in seattle whether that is in redmond wherever we are lord we want to live for your kingdom thank you lord it's in jesus name we pray